Welcome to Storied History. This episode, we're going to be discussing The Undoing Project, a friendship that changed our minds, a book by Michael Lewis that came out in 2016. Today, I'm joined by Jay Cornelius. Hello. Dan Painter. Hello. Hey, Mark Greenstein. Hey, Jen Janke. Amanda Erickson. Hello. And Tom Shaneborn. Hi, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Lewis is the author of 15 books. A few of his better-known books uh, have been made into movies. The Big Short, The Blind Side, and Moneyball. I'm going to read a little bit from Amazon's description of the book. 40 years ago, Israeli psychologist Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky wrote a series of breathtakingly original studies undoing our assumptions about the decision-making process. Their papers showed the ways in which the human mind erred systematically when forced to make judgments in uncertain situations. Their work created the field of behavioral economics, revolutionized big data studies, advanced evidence-based medicine, led to a new approach to government regulation, and made much of Michael Lewis's own work possible. Kahneman and Tversky are more responsible than anybody for the powerful trend to mistrust human intuition and defer to algorithms. And this book is about their work and their friendship. Jay, you picked this book for us, and I was curious to hear a little bit of what what interested you about the book. So I read Daniel Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, or at least I've read a large portion of it. It's a big, (laughs) fat book. Huge. It's like 800 pages or something. Um, That's a lot of pages, guys. Uh, (laughs) And there's no pictures. Yeah. uh, Actually, they're... (laughs) Tom has also read it. But um, I I thought this book... Way to brag, Tom. (laughs) In case anyone missed it, Tom also read Yeah, I'm sorry. Did uh, did I just brag by saying, yes, there are pictures in the book? (laughs) (laughs) Just just so we're clear. (laughs) Um, But but I thought they... uh, that Kahneman's uh, studies and how he explains the, the the way the mind works and thinking fast and slow uh, is doing more to transform how society uh, exists, moves forward, how society develops than a lot of the stuff we read about in our history podcast, mm-hmm. which would be more focused on political leaders. So I kind of wanted to throw a book out there uh, while, and it's still happening. So like the way that humans understand their own mind is con- is evolving very rapidly from these two guys' work mm-hmm. and they're like the, the people that came after them. Um, and so like we, we are living in this transformation of how we understand our own mind. Um, so... I wanted to just put this to the group to see if you would also feel the same way about like, th- th- like we're watching history change a little right. bit, but it's from a different perspective than we normally consider. It's not about like the changing of national borders or, you know, political leaders and civil liberties changing. It's just changing how we understand ourselves. How long ago did that book come out more or less? Thinking fast and slow. Yeah, three or four years. Well, I literally had just. It's had a it couple my, years older than this for sure. Just a few years older. Yeah, okay. yeah okay. I think. Okay, just curious. You want to give so? it some context? Three or four yeah. years ago, maybe. It's if only there was some way to keep. Everybody keep, that up. <laughs> everybody keep talking about it for a second. Okay. Right, hang on. Tom has his phone oh, now. Thanks. So Tom. that that was Kahneman, right? Thinking fast and slow. Yeah. Okay. But you know, it's it's really a compilation of all the studies that are talked about in right. in this book. So it's kind of like. 2011. Yeah. The okay. culmination of, wow. of their work together. Mm. Yeah. Even though Tversky died way before the, the Thinking Fast and Slow came so out. So I read yeah. Thinking Fast and Slow, and I didn't make the connection until now that it was Kahneman, uh, and that explains why this book reminded me so much of So thinking you were thinking fast pretty slow. slowly, basically. <laughs> I was thinking very slowly, yes. Well, I mean, what's fun about the... Not the not to totally take up the whole time talking about thinking fast and slow, but there's what's great about that book is if, if our listener has reads uh, <laughs> the undoing project and wants to read for there's so much more. There's so many different things that are also covered in thinking fast and slow. And that's sort of the, the fast and slow sort of mental model, which uh, Tversky and Kahneman don't think ever really ever get into. I feel like that's more of a Kahneman 
the first system, second system. Yeah. Yeah. But there's so many, like, they, Kahneman wraps in, like, all yeah. the early studies of Tversky that they worked on, that they collaborated with. And it's like, out of all the studies they did together, then he, he adds, you know, additional layers on yeah. top of it. Yeah. So I'm assuming that book is all theory research versus the historical perspective that we yes. that we get on these men's lives in this book. Yeah, it's <laughs> the Thinking Fast and Slow is more um more academic than this book, but it's still highly readable. I mean, it's it's it is intended for a mass market consumption. Okay. Yeah. It just doesn't have the sort of personal anecdotes and backstory in it that that the Michael Lewis book does but in the same way that like michael lewis tries to sort of slowly break down a lot of the theories and you know what are they called the science of you know small questions or what's the term that he uses for that anyway um that's what the that that's the whole book of thinking fast and slow is is those sort of um those sorts of uh questions but I, i that's one of the parts i think that i like most about the Michael Lewis book, it, The Undoing Project, is that it is um, both the personal story, which was fascinating, um, and but also trying to work in the, the psychology or the behavioral economics of, um, of what it is. Which, by the way, I don't know if we covered this. I blanked out the first few minutes. Um, the reason that they won the Nobel, or that he won the Nobel for behavioral economics was because they don't have a Nobel for psychology, which mm. I think is kind of an interesting. Right. Oh, and that so was they just Kahneman who won. The closest yeah, one so they yeah, could give they're him. just like, eh, okay, sounds good. Yeah. Well, I mean, they kind of invented behavioral economics, yeah. and they tether it with economics so that we can explain how people behave or don't behave according to economic theory. Yeah. Um, and one of the other things that I was kind of hoping to get out of this book is like thinking fast and slow it is a little bit wordy like they explain a point and then they kind of go in depth into each point and to be honest you don't maybe need to really drive every point home the last third of every chapter yeah like eh, just skip to the next chapter now and so i was kind of hoping that a person who has an established track record michael lewis of of um condensing material and making it even more uh, digestible to the average reader, like Moneyball, or you know, taking something mm-hmm. that was really a dry subject matter and then making it exciting. I was kind of hoping. Well, something like I mean, Moneyball has this sort of has like the sports hook, right? That's easy, but like the Big Short, like no one even wanted to understand <laughs> right. that, so, right? Like immediately turned off, and yet he managed to make that Ooh. like really fascinating. Yeah, like, it is. I mean, tremendous skill as an author. Uh, yeah to do that and out of the gate the liar's poker you know his uh first book which is about him trading on wall street and kind of like the phallus like you know revealing behind the curtain of what what goes on on wall street um you know another dry subject that he that he made kind of fascinating but that kind of seems like um i mean lewis seems to be pulling all those threads together with this too because I think he's really um, deeply suspicious of Wall Street mm-hmm. and all the systems that we have right now that are kind of around that financial kind of empire um, and basically saying it's too complicated now. We have algorithms. No one can actually gut gut their way through Wall Street. That's not a thing anymore. But yet there's a whole industry that that is that. And we're still supposed to be paying for that. And we're supposed to, if we want to be part of Wall Street, if you want to be part of this investment world, you have to, I mean, you don't have to buy into it. You can do index funds. <laughs> but he, I mean, he, he, yeah, he's, he's got all those things all together. So in terms of like a thesis, it seems like he would land down on the side of n- not trusting Wall Street. Not right. not putting your money into hedge funds because of their management style. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, it's for sure. It's like the old school baseball team method of sending right. out scouts that like how a guy looks and everything. Exactly. He spends his whole book disproving yeah. those kinds of assumptions. But yeah. yeah, but that whole industry does exist on that. And I imagine is really resistant. I thought oh, that, yeah. To, uh, I thought his sports, um, I thought that, was that the introduction? The beginning of the book, how mm-hmm. he introduced um, a lot of his ideas through um, sports was really, I thought a lot of those anecdotes were really interesting, but it took me a while to f- understand where he was going. Hmm. Yeah, I actually kind of thought there was a little too much time spent mm-hmm. on basketball, um, especially coming out of Moneyball, which is right. the whole thing about baseball. I'm like, so <laughs> there's a couple of long chapters, or maybe one long chapter, where he really goes deeper into basketball than I really expected. And I'm like, are you writing the same book again? <laughs> I uh, like basketball a lot, so I was okay with it. Me too. So you're okay me with too. It? I wanted to read the whole book. Just I'm like, okay. Yeah, I was going to say, can you, like, can, yeah, absolutely. can I assume, Dan, you're with me that you were really disappointed fascinated. when it didn't like, come oh. back to that? Yeah. <laughs> Israel whereas, in the whereas 40s. Like, Good Lord, this is depressing. Yeah. <laughs> whereas like when Amanda and I were talking about it, I was like, so you're going to have to kind of wade through the first chapter, whereas <laughs> but, I blitz through it. Yeah. <laughs> but I was, I, you know, I, I don't think Daniel Kahneman or Tversky were big basketball fans. So to spend... No, Tversky was. Loved it. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. They would meet, shoot free and, throws. Yeah. Apparently it wasn't very good, but, you know. But loved it. <laughs> but it, like it, it just didn't seem to me that the first chapter should be devoted to that if it's about these two people. I, I thought agree. it was a bit I, I of a really, tangent. I agree. I really enjoyed it, but it didn't seem like it fit. Yeah. It didn't quite uh, make sense I mean, to I, me. I think it would be... I think it fit if you assume that, like, Thinking Fast and Slow, which has, you know, slowly built a, an audience, like, he's trying to basically lend whatever fame and knowledge Michael Lewis has by trying to tie it to the Moneyball thing and as well sort of un- undo a lot of the things that he did with Moneyball, which is, you know, sort of, you know, like even that you have to be like, yeah, but why are you looking even at those statistics, you know? And, and, and that, I, that part, I, I mean, having only sadly recently read Moneyball, it was great to sort of like roll through that for me but um and also it you know bigger mass audience i think portland is probably somewhat unique in the in our sports people but i think most everywhere else you start with a chapter on sports people are they're in i think that's pretty much it i think well everyone in this room would love to like open on to like insane academics in (laughs) early israeli history like bumping into each other like for for a lot of people, probably you're gonna to want to sell that yeah. Houston Rockets story at the beginning, and then sure, and then get into it. Yeah, uh, but speaking of the, uh, I don't know, you're not gonna start a Winston Churchill with a basketball chapter. Why oh, do you gotta start a? My God, Jay, that's a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we could do this. Hang on. Yeah, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Notes. The uh, I but the 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 Israeli history was something that I am woefully. Um, I, I don't know very well did did everybody like i felt like i really enjoyed reading that and i yeah we all know a, that already put a really good uh, i put a couple of books on hold at the library about it afterwards just because i'm like i had no idea like what the seven day war was like i, I should have known that <laughs> mm. anyway, did am i the only one basically no. a lot of early israeli history is the countries around Israel trying to kill Israel. Yeah. And everybody in Israel getting sucked into the conflict. Yeah. Yeah, I don't and think I you say were that, that. I felt really ignorant about that. Part. I say that objectively. <laughs> I'm going I'm to send you a fabulous book. Outstanding. Yeah. The, uh, um, that'll be make up for the last time. But the, um, I think the, the, I think the other part of it too, though, was sort of the, some of the cultural parts of, the Israeli history where they're basically sort of creating this country anew. They don't have any baggage. And so like this willingness to, to make decisions based on what they think at the time is sort of modern scientific thought and, you know, the way to best do micro and macro, micro and macroeconomics and to, you know, like, how, how do we find good officers? And it's like, forget, we haven't had a military for very long, so let's 
let's do all the newest thinking and not be saddled to any one thing was a, a an incredibly unique opportunity in the history of the world. I do uh, have to say that we all just failed a test about how much our knowledge of Israeli wars were because it's actually the six-day war and nobody <laughs> I blinked. I, I want you to know that I chose not to correct Tom okay. on the podcast, even though I did know the answer. Even though our audience yeah. is out there yelling at us. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Again, pointing out that there were pictures in the book. There we go. <laughs> Were you guys more, not that it's necessarily an either or question, but were you more drawn in by the, um, by the economic theories or by the, by the relationship of the characters or, or were you, were you bored by either aspect of it? I thought, I mean, I enjoyed both aspects. I was, when they got into the, like deeply into the psychology stuff, like I was completely enthralled. Like, okay. I mean, I got like the sense of their friendship and it was, a, that was a great story, but when they got into kind of the theoretical stuff, um, they, I just thought it was fascinating for about the last 30% of the book. Like I couldn't put it down. Um, I will admit I'm struggling tonight cause I don't know how to discuss a lot of it because mm -hmm. I feel like I'd have to like read quotes and be like, Oh, this really blew my mind too. But I don't know how <laughs> right. to articulate that yeah. in a Right. Like in this kind of setting, I mean, it covers so much ground. Mm -hmm. uh, the the stuff that they were kind of poking at, I mean, medicine, finance, uh, how people make everyday decisions, the military, sports. I mean, they there really is no area that you can't kind of delve into with those topics. And so, yeah, it's just it's just a huge range of things that they were kind of trying to apply this kind of scrutiny too so yeah i don't know there's well, there's just yeah it'd be hard to like pull out just one thread and be like mm -hmm. let's you could talk one thread and you could talk an hour about it yeah well yeah. that was one of the things that was somewhat maybe unique about them was the fact that they that kahneman specifically was all about what's the practical application of this right you know like it wasn't uh which is ironic given that he was sort of more of the R, you know, REMF, whereas Tversky was the gung-ho paratrooper, and but he was the one who was much more sort of theoretical in nature mm -hmm. and mathematical and trying to build these mathematical models, whereas Tversky was the guy sort of riding around in a Jeep in the rear with the gear, but he mm -hmm. was the one really trying to figure out, like, how is this going to actually apply to, you know, medicine, to whatever... I just think every time I get into a problem with my coworkers, <laughs> that it's because they don't see how blinded by their own mind they are. <laughs> Does that apply to the podcast too? Dude? Is that a what? Does that apply to the podcast too? The yeah, absolutely, the absolutely. You guys are uh, like I just am <laughs> keeping tallies of all the bad decisions you're Sorry making about that. that you're not even aware of all the time. Well, when Tom told me what this the book was going to be and and he described it to me and I said oh great this sounds like it will confirm my worldview can I get in on this <laughs> and he's like oh yeah so because I have this whole rant about common sense and how I kind of think it's ridiculous how oh, there is no common sense yeah say more about that there is no common sense Co common sense is putting on socks if it's going to be cold out but like we have this whole especially in recent years, I feel like, like this whole political system where sometimes it boils down to somebody saying, well, surely my way is correct because common sense says it must mm -hmm. be. And a lot of it, you're like, oh, yeah, it does sort of feel that way. But then if you sit down and you start breaking down the arguments, oh, yeah, it's wrong. Like your your gut feeling is actually bad. It's mm -hmm. it's not right. So, and if you take it from big decisions to small decisions, I mean, often our our gut feeling is just this goes back to thinking fast and slow. It's just the thing we're reaching for, so we don't have to think anymore. Right. And if you can pick an idea that really resonates on a gut level with people, 
and then hide all your other political bullshit behind it, you can take that stupid idea and get really far with it. And I feel like... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) The wall? (laughs) Yeah. A wall is one. Uh, And I don't... I... People are really wedded to common sense and gut feelings, which you got to do it just to get to the end of your day. But on a policy level, it's... Mm -hmm. Bad Almost it always is wrong. Fascinating though, like that, like this book illustrates, like you know, I think we're used to hearing like scientific arguments for why someone's opinion is wrong, right? So someone can say, mm. like, I deny climate change. You can be like, well, here ninety nine point nine percent of scientists, and that's not an effective argument, really, right? For, right? Like you're not changing anything. But this book is fascinating and talking about like, well, how do all these people who deny climate change get there, and that the pattern is so similar, like all the ways they break down the reasons that so many people can think the same way. And it's, you know, it's not just that they're like an idea is foisted upon them. It's they're using these same human brain structures and, you know, these like really thinking errors, not just patterns, but these thinking errors to all get to the same place despite everything. I mean, it's fascinating. It's you talked about the book, uh, reaffirming your worldview and I think it reaffirms my worldview that people are stupid <laughs> because it talks about how things are generally not what they seem mm. and people think that things are as they seem and that how could it be otherwise yeah yeah surely well, that's that common sense what right. Kahneman was interviewed by and I can't think of his name the guy that, the hidden brain podcast Oh, uh, Shankar Vedantam. So the Hidden Brain podcast, which, or show, which which is, I feel like three quarters of their episodes have to do with some one of the theories oh, sure, espoused yeah. by uh, the Kahneman and Tversky. Um, anyway, they they asked Kahneman, you know, sort of, you know, based on every, you know, all the research that you've done, so on and so forth, and the fact that it policy is sort of marshalling uh, opinion and everything else. Like, what are the big things that you think are going well, what are the things that are going poorly? And one of the things I think he said was going really poorly was the whole climate change <laughs> debate. Yeah, and it just is going poorly. Because Very just because poorly. like Yeah, just because like <laughs> you you know, the the reasons you can or can't convince people around science and again because it is, you know, it, it's such a difficult concept to wrap your head around sort of the whys and everything else and that you just sort of like, well, I must just... Yeah. But not just that. Inaction is easier than oh, yeah. action. Right. So if there's a justification that means I can just keep doing the same thing that I've been doing, it's very easy to probably convince me on most issues. Not that one. But <laughs> but on most issues to do the thing that requires me to do nothing. Yeah. Or if somebody kind of convinced me it's actually in my best interest to do nothing which there's a lot of that argument out there too, that's even better. That's my joke joke at work. Doing nothing is what I do best. (laughs) (laughs) And if you were Kahneman and Tversky, you could sit in your office all day and do nothing and get paid for it. Which uh, uh, you'd (laughs) asked earlier, like which part of the book do you find, um, you know, did you find more compelling? And one of the reasons I didn't find, I think the interaction between them quite as compelling is because we didn't get, that much of it like we weren't True. really able to get that deep into it i wanted to be in that secret room right yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. in the room we like that. Just, yeah. which is why like yeah we got a lot more of their personal histories versus right. their interactions right whereas i thought the when they went and started to go down the road of the researcher who did uh who, who was looking into the sort of interaction of really um successful couples for lack of a better term mm-hmm. uh pairs of people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and yeah and it was just like oh this is gonna be great and then it was like but he never published the paper or whatever and you're just like oh, <laughs> next chapter <laughs> son of a bitch but it, like to me that was gonna be really fascinating i was hoping we were gonna get into more of what that dynamic was between them mm-hmm. um and it, if if there's one failing of this book i feel like it was that we didn't ever really terribly behind the scenes of some of that stuff uh. until the end good you can you you sure go you go <laughs> so I, it's all the momentum's gone you go ahead now you've already got the book open <laughs> until the end uh you know 
I think I forget who started it, but one of them took. I think Tversky took a college job. Well, Kahneman got married, remarried, right? And as soon as he had an object or uh, an object of his attention that could rival Tversky, um. I think that's when their relationship started to break apart. Mm. And it, it could be... It, it, uh, Is this your theory? Yeah, there's there's a little potential mm-hmm. theory in here. Like, I, I think Tversky couldn't handle Kahneman getting as much credit as Tversky. Like, Kahneman always kind of deferred to Tversky, and Tversky got most of the credit throughout their professional mm-hmm. careers where they were both still alive. And then Kahneman started to get a little bit more. Then they started to get a little bit more contentious. I'm not sure exactly of the order of things at this point, but um, it's okay. It's a history podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a thing where Tversky got the like the the higher status college um, professorship, uh, and then Kahneman kind of got less, you know, second tier right. offerings. Um, but really, I think what broke it up was that Kahneman had this uh, this new wife in the picture, and mm-hmm. it was it was like Tversky wasn't like what you're you're not following me to where I am, and you're not going to pay all your attention to me so that we can think through our ideas together. Was this the Yoko Ono theory? Could be that she was Tversky's Yoko, and <laughs> she. Uh, which, by the way, is a terrible theory. <laughs> it is a terrible theory, and Yoko got a bad rap. That's interesting. I think I got more focused on the, what was it, the MacArthur Award, that moment? Mm, yeah. That that was the moment where I was seeing the divide, was when um, um, Kahneman didn't get the award. <coughs> I guess there were multiple awards, but that mm-hmm. seemed like the big one that they focused on. Your theory, Your theory is more interesting, though. Yeah. Mine is basically the Guns N' Roses theory where <laughs> this is obviously with me, going it's to be brief. better than Yoko. Yeah. Uh, Go on. <laughs> but these forces all come together. I mean, we're talking about these sort of, uh, you know, they talk about like reality being a sort of pattern of possibilities and not just mm. a singular thing. Like these two minds, I don't think they would have got to this place independently. They would have been brilliant as mm-hmm. they already were. Um, but when they hit each other, I think then you get this sort of world-changing uh, ideas that they left behind, which is its appetite for destruction, oh, which nice. clearly cannot mm-hmm. last. <laughs> and then you move once they start getting to professorships, you get into the Use Your Illusion albums, which are pretty good, <laughs> but yeah. not. And then implosion after that. But it really could yeah. only sustain for this one, this intensity, like to make these kind of changes for like mm-hmm. this one. I mean, how long were they? How long were they locked at the hip, like at Israel, and then in when they went to Eugene, Eugene, Oregon? Yeah, yeah, for like maybe ten years. Well, how long was that period? Right, that's what I was going to ask. Was do you think they were always destined to to divide at some point? Do you think that they're for sure? Yeah, I mean, I think there's. It's. I don't think they had to. (laughs) Well, if you isn't this one of their theories? (laughs) Like the, the, the 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 sort of the. Well, if only if only yeah, you know, if mm-hmm. only they'd gotten to that intersection five seconds earlier. If only Tversky right. had insisted mm-hmm. that uh, they'd be considered a, a duo for the mm-hmm. MacArthur Awards. Is this where I bring up Sliding Doors starring Gwyneth Paltrow? Or mm-hmm. is yeah, that relevant at this it. point. Well, so it's got to happen once an episode, right? So right. Go right. Yeah. <laughs> there That's was an rule. interview with Shore. Shore's interviewing famous pairs, right? Yep. And uh Kahneman says he starts talking about envy and he's like, Oh, I hate the feeling of envy. I may be saying too much now. And then he goes back and listens to it years later and he's like, Oh, it's so clear to me that at that moment we were through as a partnership. Um and that's the interesting thing because I think the envy starts at a different point in reality, than where he himself thinks it starts. Mm. What do you, can you say more, a little more about that? What do you mean? <laughs> so they're talking about the envy because of these different awards that are right. going to each other. Right. But I think that it... it oh, you think it's about the relationship? I think it's about That's relationships. Mm, yeah. So you think it's more envy on the part of Amos? 
On Tversky. Uh, well, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if something did enter Kahneman's life, and you know, he found love at a, a, you know, a different kind of love at a late stage, then he should be able to have his attention be focused on that, and not necessarily focused on Tversky. But the the intensity of the work that they were doing wouldn't allow that. So, it, I mean, it does go both directions. But mm-hmm. but it's also that relationship that Kahneman has outside of the partnership of Tversky and Kahneman that allows him to see that Tversky isn't treating him as an equal, but more as a subordinate. Right. Hmm. If history has taught us anything, and I would hope that it has, because why are we doing this podcast <clears> if not? But if history has taught us anything, it's that geniuses are very difficult people. And presumably these two guys are geniuses. And it does seem that it was inevitable that at some point they would not get along. Like they would drive each other, they would drive each other away because they were presumably both difficult people. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I don't think, I, I, I'm also not a big believer in geniuses. Mm. Um, Interesting. And, I, and as a filmmaker, a former filmmaker, um, I thought a lot about collaborative partnerships because mm-hmm. all films need just about every single, unless you're Robert Rodriguez and you, you're making, anyway. All, Spy Kids 3. <laughs> Spy That's where Kids I was three. going, Spy Kids <laughs> <Man> 3. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> But Singular. you definitely need partnerships, and generally right. we attribute genius to mm. the to one member of a partnership, mm-hmm. and then there's somebody else that's equally important to that partnership that doesn't get the public credit for it. Yeah. So. Well, and if history has taught us anything, is that there is a lot happens. of people often behind the scenes, either who are purposely not getting credit, or they just don't take the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And this is a case where these two people kind of were almost equal in their acclaim and their kind of uh, purview. You know, Mm -hmm. they both had kind of these broad areas of expertise. People really respected both of them individually and then together. Um, So they got a lot of credit. I kept wondering, who are these women that have married these guys? Mm. Because they seem so into each other and so into this career. And the ideas are fascinating. So I can see how engrossing that would be if you had somebody to really kind of um, ping those ideas off of and have a very like rich exchange. Like that would be amazing. Like that would be an amazing partnership. And I thought, gosh, and then there's some wives and kids like what? Right. <laughs> and and I I feel like uh, Tversky's wife was maybe also an academic. I can't remember now. The second but, wife, yeah. Uh, and no, I was, sorry. For- I was sort of interested in like, wow, I bet this whole atmosphere was honestly pretty interesting and full. Um, you yeah, know. it would be fascinating to know more about that whole backstory. Yeah. Because you know they were hearing about it at home. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> You know they were. Well, didn't you say at one point that you mentioned that one of them was remarried, which would suggest that's that Kahneman, right? Yeah, Kahneman. Kahneman, that yeah. Perhaps that that marriage relationship didn't hmm. always work because they sure. were maybe such difficult people. <laughs> How dare you? I said it. No filter. Hashtag no filter. <laughs> I was kind of curious since I'm not a regular member of your podcast as i was listening to this i was like what are all these history nerds what's the context that they're thinking about as they're reading this like how how do these ideas relate to our historic stories or you know pivotal moments in history i mean is it making you guys rethink any historical truths that you feel like you know well i mean i think it's the decision making that goes into this sort of historical truths that, you know, like, well, that's the way history went, but you know, the decision that they made at the time, who knows what it was based on. And, and, you know, even if you have, you know, somebody like a Churchill who documented the hell out of everything that he did, you know, in terms of making these sort of big moral judgments and things like that, even that was just sort of fitting the narrative of what 
you know, he saw, uh, you know, going through it. I mean, especially to like his early years and things like that. Less so fighting the Nazis. That was clearly a good, was a good choice. But the, um, you know, I think it definitely, um, one of the things that I, um, when I read Thinking Fast and Slow was, um, I kept calling it when I would describe it to people that it was the, the propagandist cookbook. You know, sort of like they have the, uh, what's it called? Like the anarchist cookbook, like how to make Molotov cocktails and things like that. Um, for me, this was very much like the propagandist cookbook. It is everything you need to just sort of, you know, anchor somebody on, you know, when you start negotiating, like the, Absolutely. the you yeah. know, the way that we're brought up to talk about negotiation. Oh, don't, don't make the first sort of thing, but actually you really should be the first one to mention salary and put a number there because then everybody sort of anchors around that number. Um, you should be the jerk that asshole, like, that's like way high yeah just start way high yeah and i i I, (laughs) but um i i think that there's a lot of that in this and i think we see it playing out you know geez over the last 30 40 years and in politics and the way that you bring a narrative to the public and you can sort of uh when you read sort of a series of stories with you know that are sort of going along on a particular topic you can just if, if you like sort of pick through the book of the various chapters for any one idea, you're like, okay, well that's the chapter where they're just like, oh, well we're already here. So we might as well keep going. Change would be hard. Oh, well over here is the thing where we discount what that is as being too new. And you know, just, you know, any one of the chapters mm-hmm. you can sort of pick stories out for like the wall, you know, or I mean, even things that, you know, Obama did that we thought were good. In fact, um, think you didn't you say that you got you first came across a story from a story in the new yorker where um one of the guys who uh was in this book and then one of the guys that was in the obama white house Thaler. yeah thaler and sussman why can't i think of his hmm. yeah yeah the nudge unit are you... yeah it was on yeah yeah the guys that wrote the nudge yeah um they they use a lot of these things to sort of push public policy. So like one of mm-hmm. the examples was with I think um, retirement plans for um, for uh, federal employees, where they have essentially a, what a, something that is like a four hundred one k plan. Right. And instead of they sign them up to start with. Yeah, they sign them yeah. up to start you with. So you have to out. opt out. Yeah. So like the effort level is to opt out because they're like, look saving is good we've decided saving is good yeah. so instead of making you opt in and say that you're going to give up one percent of right. your salary we're going to make you opt out to do yeah. this sort of thing and it's because effort is hard and people are inherently lazy <laughs> so this reminded me just in terms there's some like there's a lot of very complicated statistical underpinning to all this so i actually thought it made me think of like vietnam of mcnamara's kind mm. of math-based approach to the war which is i mean it's obviously you know these guys were talking at about the same time but that was i think mcnamara was happening separately but if you remove you know everything that these guys are talking about which is they're trying to get the kind of the human aspect right of statistics and probability and things like that but if you take that human aspect out like mcnamara like some of the ideas are the same but you can see the sort of horrible things that happen if you just start making decisions on like pure statistics, like, you know, casualty lists, probabilities and things like that, but it's still similar underpinnings. Just these guys took it in a very different direction. Yeah. Well, these guys sort of went that, that was the whole sort of Daryl Morey thing at the beginning. It's like, yeah, but why are you looking at scoring and rebounding? (laughs) Yeah. You know, like, you know, like why, why choose those statistics? Um, what other statistics, you know, may be out there? Like what, what are those, you know, what do those bias you against? Well, and I, I feel like our whole nation state is based on this idea that we are rational and we are logical. And we have common sense, Amanda. Not, not, no, mo- more than common sense. We'll um, <laughs> <laughs> more than common sense. I think that there's a, 
uh, a strongly held belief that the cream that rises to the top are people that are rigorously rational and rigorously logical. Yes. And so, yeah, we hang it is, But it, you're totally right. That is there. Like, there's somehow, yeah. if they got there, yes. they must be right, right they or this doesn't make it. sense. That's right. Oh, that's yeah. so disturbing. Yeah. It, it, it is. And I mm. think also, like... It's- that was the context that I kept trying to be like, well, gosh, what, you know, some of these historical leaders and people that were at pivotal moments in history, we really have no way of knowing, you know, whether their choices were right or good, uh, or even good ideas at all. Or do or, we just assume that they were? Yeah. At this point? They've been written into the story mm-hmm. as good. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's because yeah. history is written by the winners, Amanda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> that's what we. But I think the co- I think the context too for like today and trying to to figure out well okay what do you do with this? Uh, my my favorite part of the book is when the grad student raised her hand and said, "And so what?" Because there he's going on and on and on about all these logical pitfalls. Like, so then what? Yeah. So what? Mm-hmm. Therefore, and he kind of doesn't have an answer, right? So they, they don't really have an answer. I mean, there's certain systems that they can work in, but this basic um, pitfall of the human mind. So here's <laughs> my uh, my big picture takeaway from this is that we can teach ourselves how to change how we act from a young age if we decide to do it culturally. So like humans have, I'm going to compare it to broccoli. Yes. <laughs> humans have things that taste good to them naturally. Um, and then there are things that we teach our children to, uh, to eat because we've already tasted them. And we've decided that these things are good for us. And we have to introduce these tastes to our children, generally. Some children are born with it, sure. But, but um, And I heard a theory about maybe humans exist this way because there are some poisonous things out there. And so you shouldn't be going and tasting everything and just eating everything. But if we've already determined that something is safe, it's been vetted by society, then we can introduce that and we can cultivate a taste for how to eat certain Mm -hmm. things. And it's almost like we can do that with how we think. And this seems like a very powerful idea. So if we can understand how we think poorly, and then we can teach our children how to modify their thinking, as they're growing up, I think we can unlock new ways of thinking in the future that we haven't even really Hmm. come into contact with yet. Some of that is just artificial intelligence too. Like if we can recognize how we are at fault in our thinking, we can devise algorithms that are, are unbiased. There's of course the danger in designing algorithms that are themselves inherently (laughs) biased because the programmer has basically embedded Mm. those into the code recognizing that we are at fault is a pretty big if well Mm. yeah but this gets us closer there i mean that's Mm -hmm. what this whole this whole book is about and the other the other studies is like figuring out what is wrong with the way we are thinking and so that we can make improvements well one of one of the like the successful example is like um pilots (laughs) commercial pilots Mm -hmm. fighter pilots exactly um medical technicians where they've agreed to follow checklists a checklist and that was like a massive undertaking that all of those people wanted to reject <laughs> because they knew how rational and perfect that they were. Mm-hmm. They had trained. They don't need a checklist. Checklists are for babies. I work in healthcare currently. <laughs> yeah. Providers are still like that, no matter what. <laughs> totally. We haven't changed. They have to learn it new every single time. Right. And the ones that have been able to embrace that protocol... My dad was a military guy. He used to say, nope, we do it that way every single time on mm. the checklist. Don't ever try to do it a different way. We always do the checklist. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, that's a very anti-rational 
the checklist is like it's anti-human yeah it's very <laughs> rational it yes it's it's anti our thoughts about being rational yes it's anti-human <laughs> anti-common sense it is anti-common yeah. sense it's like forget mm. your gut now but what about all the edge cases what about the right stuff man uh <laughs> yeah the edge cases i mean but that's why humans are still in the cockpits right is for those edge cases. So it's not that we don't have the ability to uh, do new things under pressure. But for the everyday things, oh, we have such a hard time just like going through the motions when that's what's required to get to get yeah. to the right spot. Yeah, that I, think- was, I mean, one of the big findings from, from the book, right, was that humans are great at designing algorithms, but terrible at actually following, following. their own checklists yeah. right so that's, they were just that's also boring right yeah <laughs> that's oh, true i think the Checklist idea of this suck. book being a new way of thinking is great in theory i think the idea of it being put into practice is wishful thinking it's already but, but it's practice. i think it's by so who, though it's it is, by the it oakland is. athletics and they are so close to winning a, the world series Thank you. Society i don't want to jump in but yes it's the wishful thinking. but i uh, know i think i think jay is i mean i think that this is I think this is a large scale thing that is happening. I think so actively. too. Yeah. Like it's been, I mean, and it's, what is this, four decades worth? Yeah. Like starting from pure academia, like to s- now. I mean, you. When, even, when, did, the, when did the Israeli, uh, when did this book open? It's in the 1960s. So we're like 50, 60 years in, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you have yeah, more I mean, faith in humanity than I do, Dan, because I don't feel that humanity is going to. Take this theory and put oh, it Oh, that's together. just because we're in an especially dark time. We've always been in a dark time, though. <laughs> history shows us. If we've learned anything from history... <laughs> then we don't learn anything from Instead history? Instead, we don't learn anything from history, <laughs> and Mark, it's one dark time here's, after Here's another. one thing to think about. We're all still here. History says 100% of the time we will still exist. Whoa, dude. You keep thinking that tomorrow is going to be the end, but we are, we're it. still here. What? I don't know. But 200 all, years from now, I got All a the evidence feeling. says, every empirical evidence says we'll still be here tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. <laughs> wow. That's not a very long time. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think there is some interesting stuff happening, though. And <laughs> I think a lot of the um, kind of systemic challenges in the U.S. right now where, you know, we, we suddenly have a whole... Not just women in Congress, we have women of every, uh, all kinds of backgrounds. And that's, that's a big challenge to our gut feelings that men are, are the natural leaders and we're only going to vote for them. Like that's a systemic upset that requires us to be a little bit more open in our thinking, to be a little bit deeper than our gut feelings and common sense about how things should work. And... I think you're seeing it in some workplaces as well, trying to challenge that status quo because we have realized we are missing good stuff by sticking with the status quo. Which theory is it? I know you and I talked about this briefly. It's not representation, but it. Which one? It's the one I talk about if you have kids growing up where like they see that Congress is 50% women, like that they will then identify what a congressperson looks like. Oh, sure. Yeah. It, that where that mm-hmm. shifts because yeah. that's what they've seen all the time. Mm-hmm. Now it's a different, and I don't think it's anchoring. Yeah, I which you brought up earlier, but representativeness. Ness, but but right, but like a critical thinking pattern where like yeah. all of a sudden that becomes the default. Right. When you're like yeah. think of a congressperson, it's not Mitch McConnell anymore. It's Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, right? That's and right. that's all of a sudden yeah. that's the congressperson yeah. that you see most of the time, mm-hmm. right? And that is different, and that is a fundamental. shift that's where like these tectonic shifts happen i do think too that after 60 years of this sort of being debated and sort of making its way into sort of psychology and behavioral economics and things like that is that um you're starting to see elements of it enter like public education like you you Mm -hmm. start to see like I mean, in the same way that we are seeing sort of a a different way of dealing with kids with behavioral issues and things like that, um, understanding um, kids with trauma and their backgrounds and stuff like that, where um, we have a more educated uh, education system, which, you know, it's a good thing to have. Um, The uh, and I think that, you know, we're 
the, the issue of like, you know, the kids are learning this new way of thinking. And I think though they will, there will still be sort of like friction between what they're hearing about in school and then what they see their parents do at home, which is probably, you know, sort of old ways of doing things. But then, you know, generationally things start to slowly change where the new way of sort of thinking through problems and realizing that your brain is trying to trick you that you're like, Oh no, I need to slow down what I'm Mm -hmm. thinking here and use system two of my brain to sort of deal with this rather than having like big emotional reactions. I see it in our daughter and a lot of us have younger kids. Is she learning that at school? Yeah. Like they have like the emotional intelligence angle to what kids learn today is so much more than I feel like I ever got. Like my, it's a lot more nuanced. Yeah, like my, yeah. you know, my daughter's ability. Certainly not all the time, but more often <laughs> than I do, of just being like, I'm really mad. I'm gonna go take myself to my room for a few minutes <laughs> and think about things. And when I calm down, we can have a real, more rational discussion or whatever. And then she like stomps off, and you're like, she doesn't say rational. No, she doesn't. But I mean, like, she, but the <laughs> you rest had of it, me until then, though. I was yeah, <laughs> no, but I mean, like, she'll do. He's like, How then we can she? talk. She's eight, you know, and. I wish I could do that often, yeah, you know, sure. at work. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I, you should be is, able to do that at work. Honestly. Yeah. That would be the next stage. Yeah. Like, but, but I think that, you know, <sighs> th- she, she is learning that from people who are not her, um, her parents necessarily. Um, although we're trying to learn it from her. And I think that's pretty amazing. And I think in the same way that some of this thinking is going to make its way into childhood education and it will filter up to parents and then back down into the next generation of kids. And I think that Jay's right and that this this is a pretty groundbreaking change, sea change in psychology and, you know, behavioral economics, uh, which sounds like a buzzword, seems like. Sounds like behavioral economics sounds like saying proactive. Yeah, um, totally. I have a feeling <laughs> it'll... Got a solution? I have a feeling it's on the cusp of becoming something else. You know, like behavioral economics sounds like a really succinct way to describe what they are getting at. But I do think it is starting to kind of fracture to be a lot more developed. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I mean by that. My- but I, I think it's turning into uh, a, a broader sort of, not curriculum, but... Field of study, in a way. I think that it is being more abused by businesses <laughs> and marketers mm, totally. sure. than it is by social scientists and sort of mm. the general populace. And that's what I was like. It, the true. thing is, it's I think it's we're going to get a, screwed by it before we get It's a thinking error, right? It's not just. Yeah. I would love to think that it's like yeah. it's not like it's a movement that you become more self-aware and then we become kinder over sure. generations. Like yeah. generally, us liberals like to think like, oh. Yeah. Someday my kids are going to call me racist, and that'll make me so proud because they've moved farther <laughs> right, like, than I was. What? But a great this is. Day. But this I'm is. I'm going to call you, Dan. Right. But this is not <laughs> that. This is like patterns of thinking errors, which are right. are don't have a good or bad judgment in them. Mm. It's just a thing we do, which then can right. be abused, weaponized. Oh, yeah. Weaponized. Yeah. I wrote that on like, how can you weaponize this? On page uh, 304. And I do think like a lot of businesses are specifically exploiting these weaknesses that are pointed out. And I also think, though, that businesses are um, incorporating it into their organizational behavior, into their uh, like making their employees slow down and Mm. include new decision making tools into their into their thinking. So it's both being like used against us, but you being used for us as well at the same time. So. I don't know what the end result will be. Yeah. It's like a sword with two edges. <laughs> and, Although just and a shield. I mean, to process here, you are working for big business right now. Um, That's I, what you do. Yeah, I'm working for a homeless uh, medical clinic. So, yeah, yeah, non totally, medical. Okay, what, yeah, whatever. Anyway, what <laughs> same yeah. yeah, whatever. Jeff Bezos. Yeah. yeah, right. Owned by Big Pharma. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> don't vaccinate. <laughs> well, I was gonna. I was thinking of the example of these Russian Twitter bots who they've like 
track down all this anti-vax chatter going oh, yeah, out there. Yeah. I saw just that. Just because it makes us crazy. It yeah. just is a crazy They just send out topic. like anti-vax and pro-vax like yeah. just at the same rate just to make people I was like, man, that's just brilliant. I'm sure I have fought with a Russian Twitter bot online. I'm right? sure I've done that. Because they're just like, oh, this is a topic that gets people fired up. Let's just float some stuff out there. And Why it are works. we not doing this in retaliation? Why are we not finding out what I makes Russian know. citizens crazy <laughs> and then just sending out mass emails? Oh, because we're Americans and we don't care what other people are thinking about. That's Thank true. you. That's true. completely also, we're true. Also, we're yep. the good guys. We fight with goodness. Yeah. yeah. Russia's so far what? away. <laughs> when did we oh, time out. <laughs> The only bombs we I feel, drop are I feel like we should bombs. end the podcast Boom. soon, but we can't <laughs> possibly end on that sentiment. <laughs> so um, my impression is that everyone here would highly recommend this book. Am I right? No. Oh. No. Whoa. I would not highly recommend this book. So, Say more, Mark. <sighs> I wasn't going to say anything. Oh, no. Go for it. Go is, this, no. is this going to be a Jewish thing? It's not going to be a Jewish <laughs> thing, no. No, if anything, that would make me like the book more. <laughs> Plus, I didn't have to pay for it. I got it from the library. Um, I felt like this book, a lot of this book, could have been a TED Talk. I felt yeah. like instead of reading, how many pages is the book? Uh, 350-ish. 350 pages. It's I could have watched book. a 10-minute. It's minute, no 800 pages. I could have watched a 10-minute TED Talk and get the same thing. That things aren't always as they seem. Hmm. And I didn't feel like this was a history book. I think that's evidenced by the fact that tonight we pretty much talked almost exclusively about their theories as opposed to what happened in the book, like their story. Um, so I, I, I didn't dislike the book. I just... You're a purist. I, I, I'm a purist. I wouldn't feel the need to recommend it. Okay. I would say look for Michael Lewis's TED Talk or Kahneman's TED Talk. It's well, probably the book to read thought. if you're already into these guys, right? So that's you've maybe fair. read Thinking Fast and that. Flow. And you, Thinking Fast and Slow, not Flow. And, it, yeah. Yeah, and, and some of these other behavioral economics mm -hmm. kind of books or stories or whatever. Yeah, it's not really a, people like that. Yeah. It's not really a history book, is what you're saying. That's that was yeah. my thought. Yeah, and, and and I felt like it didn't fit in with the podcast as much as other books have. Mm. I think if that you're thinking fast and slow, curious as well, it's a good book. <clears throat> um, what's interesting about curious. the TED Talks, though, is mm -hmm. that these two guys, uh, Kahneman and Tversky's works, are featured in TED Talks. I All could the see time. them being a huge influence on TED Talks. Malcolm right. Gladwell yeah. uses mm -hmm. them. Uh, Stephen Dubner uses them. Daniel Pink, who's another yeah. the maybe Heath, the Heath brothers, Chip and whatever is oh, Heath. The yeah, yeah. Who are the Freakonomics guys? They probably Stephen are Dubner into these guys and yeah. Stephen Lewis, and yeah, they cover a lot of their theories. I I don't doubt for a minute that TED Talks are owe, owe a debt to these guys. So Absolutely. maybe it's the history of the genesis of the thinking, though. That's the. That's what I'm trying to get Genesis across, the, is that we wouldn't have TED Talks without these guys. I, I don't doubt so it. I would that agree is, with you. That it's is a history, history change in my... So mm -hmm. I but the book doesn't chronicle case. that. Oh, that's that's right. what I'm saying. <laughs> Needed to tie it directly to the yeah, TED, Talk. TED Talks. What I will say is that what you brought up earlier was that Michael Lewis has this talent for taking dry subjects and making them interesting. <laughs> and that I agree with. I, 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 I hadn't thought about it until you said that, but when you look at the topics that he takes on, um, he does seem to do that, take uh, a dry topic and make it interesting. See, and I, I, think he, I think he's just more ahead of the curve with this one in the same way to a degree that he was with, you know, he wasn't really that ahead of the curve with Moneyball. I mean, it, I think he was at the time. In well, retrospect, you, I mean, it was a curve. It's, Moneyball is now a phrase that everyone yeah. uses. Well, yeah, for sure. For, but, but like that idea, like, I mean, like the whole Six Sigma <laughs> shit has been around for, you know, I think he made it mainstream before that, but he, yeah, he made it mainstream <laughs> yeah. and he made it, you know, sort of, um, you know, he tied it to sports, but I, I think that with all of his other books, he's, 
you know, sort of at the forefront of the curve or the crest of the wave or whatever. I think with this one, he's probably more ahead of mm. the way things are changing than than not. Um, that's yeah. I do feel like this is a less regarded book of his. Um, yeah. If you ask any regular Joe on the street about Michael Lewis books. They're not going to name this. No, they're going to name seven or eight other ones. They'll be like, oh, Michael Lewis. Yeah. The Blind Side, right? I had no no idea he wrote The Blind Side. Yeah. We should, should we make this in a movie? Maybe we should do, you guys want to make a movie? (laughs) (laughs) On the end doing man. Dwayne Johnson is Tversky. (laughs) Wow. In the Undoing Project, the movie. Directed by Robert Rodriguez. I thought it was a great book. I would would recommend (laughs) it. Nice callback. You would or wouldn't? Would. You would recommend the book? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone else recommend? Um, I I enjoyed it okay. Um, It was a bit wordy. I thought it was a big book for the topic that it covered. Um, But I've also been introduced to some of their other stuff through other probably TED Talks. <laughs> I like that um, hidden brain. I, the, oh, so much hidden brain. I love hidden brain. Um, a really good I don't like his voice. Shankar Vedantam? No. No, I re- I really love all this kind of stuff. I'm I'm very fascinated by how many errors we make every day that are so ridiculous and how oh, it's it so depressing. How it magnifies on a national global level. It's ridiculous. We're it's amazing. We're all still here talking. I am more fascinated by your, you all, you all people, your take on this book than I was by the book. This has made me want to read Kahneman's book. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But I am, I wasn't, I liked this book, but I am, I'm more curious now after Mm. hearing what you all have had to say, except for you, Mark. You've not made me curious about anything. So, (laughs) do you think, uh, Tom and Jay, could you guys talk for about 20, 25 minutes on, Thinking fast and slow again. I could, except I've downloaded the book to all my other devices, and I can't download it to this stupid. No, oh, gosh, I'm sorry to hear oh. that. All right, we'll have to close down that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when it comes to recommending this book, I honestly don't know if I would. Right. Uh, I think I would just say go read Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, I think yeah. it's. I think it's more. There are more epiphanies in that book than there are in this book. Uh, yeah, per per page. Uh, so that's a very important epiphany per page metric that I use. For, uh, EPP. For my, yeah, we all do the EPP. Sure, What's the book's EPP? Is that like the Lexile score of a book? So hard for me not to go into OPP right now. I was with you. Thank you. You would have been the first one. And I think sometimes Michael Lewis has a little bit of some writerly devices that mm. he relies upon a little too much when he's you know, not quite gladwell but he can see he yeah and he introduces <laughs> a new character and he'll show like how brilliant they are by a few quirks from their past like when this guy played monopoly he didn't play by the rules he invented his own rules which what de- dealing out all the property cards and then just playing from there like that's just cheating no it's in the rule book yeah it's in the rule book if you read the monopoly you can do that it's the kids version <laughs> it is it's it's right there it's not the kids version it's the fact no version it's not it's not a kid's version. It's, J- in the, it's an adult. Okay. Well, Jay I'm knows just saying, grown-ups play one way, kids play another. I don't know. Okay. Jay anyway, knows like, games. Dan, Case Jay closed. has his way of thinking right, about fine. things, and that's fine. okay. Yeah. But I do like errors. the book. I do like the book. It was a good book. Dan, I have three words for you. Advanced squad leader. That's a good, that's a good game. Good. <laughs> the man knows games. That's what I'm so, saying. So that's that's my that's my. T- it was a good book, but I think I would just go straight to the source, mm-hmm. uh, thinking See, fast and slow. I... Uh, I think it would depend on the who I was recommending it to because I I uh, really found the I mean Moneyball was obviously a, a fascinating book and then like the lead-in stuff with the Houston Rockets was also super interesting so awesome. because basketball is its own sort of unique thing in the in the in its uh, resistance. To statistical analysis, I think would be probably a good way to describe it. Um, but like, if 
you know, sort of any Joe on the street, I'm like, if you can, if you get through that, that the chapter about the Houston Rockets, you're just like, wow, that was awesome. Keep reading and then go back and do that. But for people that sort of enjoy, not even more theoretical, but like, you know, just, you know, business books, you know, how to get better at things, you know, self-help guru sort of stuff, things like that. I would definitely like thinking fast and slow every, every time I describe it, to people, I'm just like it. The epiphany per page thing is definitely true. You just read, and you're just like, "Fuck! How many? How many times have I done that?" <laughs> is, I think this is the first uh, episode where we've ever like really focused on another book other than the one we actually read. <laughs> this is a teaser for the other. This is that's what this mm. book it is, is. Yeah, it's supposed to be the the light version of. Mm-hmm. It's the Michael Lewis's Cliff Notes version yeah. of it. Yeah, but it, it's 350 pages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, right. yeah. It, anyway, yeah, I, 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 but I don't know, like to the question of, is it a history book? I... Well, it's a, it's a history of their relationship. Yeah. So if you're interested in that, because Mark's we want to know for the right. listener, Mark's yeah. making a face. Uh, I did listen really briefly to, um, a Mike Pesca interview with, um, Lewis about this and he was kind of challenging him and he said, well, this is a book about like, errors of judgment this isn't going to tell you how to fix those (laughs) it's not solutions it's about their relationship and it's about them mining our errors Mm -hmm. whereas i think maybe in thinking fast and slow you get more into like how to overcome Mm -hmm. uh which i think is more actionable and probably a lot more fun I neither read the book nor listened to the book. I have only listened to my husband talk about the book endlessly. Oh my gosh, How me is too. Is it yeah. Good? yeah. <laughs> so I feel like I can speak with near authority. Yeah, I thought near, you read it. You would think I had read it. <laughs> but no, it's all it's all filtered through Tom. But I thought that As was interesting. Should be. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. All right, everyone. So um, stay tuned for our next episode when we'll learn more about what Tom thinks. <laughs> <laughs> about other books he's read. Uh, did it really get just hot in here? <laughs> All Catch right, our new po- podcast, Filtered Through Time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. It's minerally. <laughs> yeah. Tying back to James Webb's story. <laughs>